Good. Hey, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Hey, today, a big heads up for you if you're new around here, today is our first day of Vacation Bible School here at Mercy Church. We're pumped for this week. Um, listen, it's a, a value of ours. It's something we say a lot around here that we partner with families to raise the next generation of disciples. And this morning uh, kicks off a really important week in that. Um, so I'm, listen, I know many of you who are in here. In fact, we were praying this morning. Somebody reminded me that uh, they gave their lives to Christ at, at a vacation Bible school. And it happens all the time. And we expect God to change some lives this week. Uh, this will be one of the biggest evangelistic weeks of the year for Mercy Church. Like Christmas and Easter are great, okay? But there's something about being able to have a week where we can share the gospel in a creative, high-energy way uh, with so many different children, and that'll impact so many different families. And so as we enter into uh, the book of Acts, which is where we're going to be, uh, into the story of God advancing the gospel through the local church, this is a fitting moment to pray for God's blessing over this coming week. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to ask Abby Carpenter to come up on stage. Um, Abby is our kids coordinator for our kids ministry here at our Providence Road campus, and she's been doing so much work to get us ready for this week. So welcome her up on stage because this girl's working so hard, so hard. Um, Here's what I want to do. As she is up here kind of representing uh, VBS and all the people that are going to be volunteering with VBS this week, if you are going to be volunteering and giving some of your time this week to serve in any capacity, I want you to stand up right now as well. Might be wearing an orange shirt. There's some in the back that I see, and the rest of them are sleeping in because this is going to be their last day, and they'll be here at the, or they're serving in kids. That's right. And we got to pray over them. All right, here's what I want to do, y'all. Um, I want to pray over these folks that are, um, that are going to be serving and going to be sharing the gospel with our children. And here's what I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray off of day one of this card that was sitting in your seat. All right? So if you're not serving in our kids' ministry this week in VBS, what I want to call you to right now and ask you to do is to join us and serve through prayer over the course of this week. Because listen, if the Lord does not go with us, what are we doing? We labor in vain, right? We labor in vain. This is the work of the church this week. It's to pray and ask for God's blessing over the ministry that's happening over the course of the week that God would save and build his church in the next generation, all right? Uh, so I'm going to pray through day one, John 15, 9. Oh, what a great day. We would remain in the Father's love, and then we would bear much fruit. I'm going to pray that over our kids and over these who are standing up. So would you join me and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for Abby. Thank you for uh, these that are standing here that are hopeful. They're given their week to see children grow in the knowledge of Christ in the knowledge of your love. And God, we pray that you will bless that. God, we pray that children that don't know you would meet you, would hear the saving grace of Jesus and come to faith in you this week. Would that begin this morning and carry through this week? We know that you can, so we ask that you would. God, would you give um, patience and joy and abundance to our volunteers as they go through uh, so many children that are going to be around here? Um, we know that you love children coming to you, and you are patient and long-suffering with us. And so, God, with the love that we have seen in you, God, I pray that that would be reflected back onto these children and their families over the course of this week. God, we love you. We commit our week to you in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you all.
All right. Today, we're beginning our summer sermon series in the book of Acts. So if you have the book, uh, you got the book of Acts, it'll be inside your Bible. So open up your Bible and um, head over to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you've got this book called Acts. And we're going to be in picking up in chapter 14. And I say picking up because this is not our first time in the book of Acts. We actually began our journey through the book of Acts on August 28th of 2019. We divided the book into three volumes because we wanted to preach all of it, but we knew it would take some time, and we actually wanted to divide it out over a few years because the message in the book of Acts is so central to who we are as a church. So volume one, 2019, volume two, 2020, and we're finishing with volume three of this Acts anthology uh, here in 2021. And our overarching message of the entire book is simply this, you are sent. You're sent, which if you've been around Mercy, you've heard us say a few times, like every single weekend, uh, when we end our worship service, we end speaking this over you. Uh, and actually, if we don't, I've noticed none of us know what to do until somebody says it. It's like, do we leave or not yet? You know, which I love. Um, but we say it because we believe that God's redeeming love for you, that we celebrate in here every single week, God's redeeming love for you also comes with God's redeeming purpose for your life. It's good news we celebrate in here each week, good news that we walk out of here with each week. We don't just like meet God in here and he just stays in here and then we go out without him. No, we meet together and we meet God here, but then God goes with us as we go, and he sends us out of here with a purpose. And then what we do is we get back in here the next week, and we celebrate what the Lord has been up to throughout the week. It's the most incredible thing to me that God would not only save me, he would only save you, but then he would also invite us into his redeeming work in the lives of others. And in this last volume in our Acts series, we're going to lean into that purpose a little bit together. The theme of this last volume in the Acts series is going to be planning to go, willing to stay. Let me explain. Um, I grew up in church. Some of y'all may have, uh, you know, we're in the Bible Belt, so maybe some of y'all grew up in church, maybe you didn't, but the kind of church that I grew up in, um, about once a year, we'd have something called Mission Sunday, all right? And on Mission Sunday, this is where some missionary would come in, and they would have these things called slides, all right, and there was this machine that has little white squares with film strip embedded in them, and they would have this circle, and then they would have this clicker, and they would click it, and a different slide would pop up, and a different picture would pop up on it. It was the craziest thing, okay? Um, and then some of them would have these things called transparencies, and I even got time for that, all right? That's just how old I am, and it's, it's not a thing anymore, but they would have these, and they'd show these pictures of this faraway land, you know, and the, the work that the Lord is doing there. And then they would usually say something to the effect of, maybe God is calling you to go. And then, you know, we'd have our pastor a couple of weeks later, usually tied somewhere together in that, would, ha would announce the one church mission trip for the year. And he would say something like, maybe God is calling you to go. But y'all, I just never really planned to go. <laughs> I didn't really know how to, I, I didn't know how to discern is God calling me to go? How would I know if God is calling me to go? 
couple of times I prayed about it as I was like in high school, and then I was like, but I didn't really get an answer or something like that. So opportunity after opportunity and stories after stories just kind of came and went and came and went. It kind of became a, a tradition, like, oh, here come the slideshow, you know, this year, and then it'll be back again next year. And I began to form this idea in my head that the going, goers, was like the Navy SEAL unit of the church, all right? <laughs> so those are a few that they went, you know, and you know, maybe it was the people that were just more comfortable in another country than they were in their own, and so they went or, or something like that. I, it was just it was the strangest thing. And then in college, I read the book of Acts, and something hit me like a ton of bricks. The accounts of this church were people who planned to go. By and large, they didn't wonder if they were called to go. They were planning to go. And maybe going just meant going to their neighbors or friends or even their own family members. Over and over, going in the book of Acts means going to the sick person down the street. Sometimes it meant going to a whole new country they'd never even seen before. They weren't just willing to go if maybe they could figure out if God had called them or not. They were planning to go. They were so sure that God had not left them on the sidelines. They were so sure that God had not forgotten them and his purpose to bring his redeeming love to the world. They were sure that God has an awesome purpose for them. And they were planning for it. And I realized I'd been asking the wrong question my whole life. See, the question that I've been asking that was the wrong question is, is God calling me to go? And after reading through the book of Acts in college, I changed that question a little bit, and it totally changed my life. And the question became, where is God calling me to go? Because he's calling me to go. It's not, is God calling me to go? I'm a Christian. I'm a part of his church. It's just a matter of, where is God calling me to go? It's an important, clarifying change of mind. God has given me a purpose bigger than myself. I'm not supposed to just wait and wonder and maybe put in it. one day I might put my yes on the table for God's plan. No, I'm to go ahead and put my yes on the table and then just let God put it somewhere on the map. And what I believe God wants for Mercy Church is to be a people who aren't just willing to go maybe if God should call one day, but who are planning to go because we believe God has called us. He's invited us off the sidelines and into his mission to announce his redeeming love to the whole world. So Acts volume 3 is planning to go and willing to stay. I'm planning to go, go where he calls me. Maybe, and this is this willing to stay part, maybe he's calling me to stay here in Charlotte, right where I am. But if that's true, staying is seeing my current situation no longer as like the bench where God has left me and maybe he'll put me in the game one day. No, if I'm staying, it's because I'm sent by God right here where I am to the workplace in the neighborhood he's already placed me in. So either way, I'm planning to go. Because when you embrace God's redeeming love and see God's redeeming calling on your life, staying isn't waiting around. Staying is going. So we're going to dive into Acts 14, and I think this idea is going to get clearer as we do. Chapter 13 and 14 of this book take us through the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. He's going to have three of them over the back half of the book of Acts. And in this first one, I just wanted to show you what a, a planning to go mindset for both an individual and a church looks like. 
In chapter 14, he's going to go to three different cities. And as we go through that with him, I'm going to show you, I think, four sort of characteristics of a church where people are planning to go. That's just kind of the spirit of the church. And then I'm going to finish showing you the joy where this comes from. And I'll tell you, this is, like I said, it's very personal to me, this idea of planning to go, willing to stay. This, that phrase, I think, and I'm going to tell you this towards the end of the sermon, has shaped uh, three big decisions in my life for what Courtney and I and our family were going to do next, talking career-wise and, and everything else. And it's very personal and also filled with joy when we get caught up in God's mission. So let's jump into verse one. We'll make our way through the chapter, and I'll show you some of these characteristics of the church along the way, a church that's planning to go. Here we go. Let's start in verse one, right? All right. In, y'all ready? Yeah. Yeah, good. That's right. Always be wooing that Bible. That's good. In Iconium, they entered the Jewish synagogue as usual and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. This is the they, this is the Apostle Paul, his buddy Barnabas. We're picking up in Iconium. Chapter 13 uh, has already documented a few steps, a few spots that they've stopped since they set sail from Jerusalem. And the reason they are going is because of what God called them to at the beginning of chapter 13. Here's the beginning of chapter 13, all right? As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after they fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Hope you see what I believe to be a model for how the Lord calls and sends. The church together is worshiping in unity, fasting regularly, praying together, and out of that healthy unity, the Lord sends out. That's why we strive so hard to keep the main thing the main thing around here. We strive for unity together, for prayer here. We try to be open-handed with our people and resources because we want the Lord to use us to accomplish his mission. We want to be a part of what God has both for Charlotte and the far ends of the earth. Well, towards the end of chapter 13, Paul, this is great to me, Paul and Barnabas are just not very well received in Antioch. All right, this is the last place they go before they hit uh, Acts 14 where we are. And so they, uh, they got to go. They leave, they kick the dust off their feet, and they move on to Iconium. But what I love is they leave behind a church. They're not well-received. Like, not well-received means a lot of people do not like them. They're yelling at them. They're threatening them. And they got to go. They got to flee. And yet they leave behind a church. And it says at the end of Acts 13, that church was filled with joy for the work ahead of them. Because while Paul and Barnabas were called to continue on and go, They were willing to stay, and they were going to reach their city with the gospel. And Antioch becomes one of the greatest church-planting centers in the ancient Christian world. They're just ready to go. So here, Paul and Barnabas are now in Iconium. Common practice for them to go into the Jewish synagogue to speak in the power of God. I was praying this uh, this morning. That's the way they spoke, in the power of God. That's something you'll see in Acts. The gospel is the power of God to save, Romans 1.16. And the power of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2 tells us, was upon them and is upon you and I. That's why they're speaking in a great way. That's why many are coming to faith. It's not because of their clever words. It's the power of God with them, verse 2. But unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. When people start believing, others are not going to be happy. There's just some that aren't going to be happy. And they'll try to poison the minds of new believers. And some of y'all have heard these things said to you. Things like, that's a cult. They're brainwashing you. 
they don't care about you. They're using you. They'll start throwing insults at the church. They are, their, their thoughts, their whole ideas are so ancient and antiquated. They're misogynist, right? They're known for how much they hate other people, not how much they love them. Why would you be there? These are the words of people who are threatened by someone's conversion to Christianity. Not everyone's going to believe, but some are, though. And those that do are going to be in the hot seat for believing. Maybe it's because you convert from a certain faith, or maybe it's converting away from the most predominant faith in our day, which is the secular faith. So unbelievers are trying to convince the new believers, no, 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 you're wrong. Don't go in there. Stay away. Verse 3, so they stayed there because of that. Paul and Barnabas stayed there a long time, spoke boldly for the Lord, who the Lord testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. And what you see right there is who the real main character is in the book of Acts. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. They spoke boldly in the power of the Lord, and the Lord testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. This is important. Signs and wonders are done by the Lord to testify to the gospel. Same as then as is true now. There's even a warning about using this power in any other way. That's over in Acts 8. Simon the magician sees this power, sees that it's more powerful than the sorcery he's been using, and he tries to buy it from the apostles. And he gets this huge rebuke because, no, 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 the signs and wonders are for one purpose, to testify to the gospel. Verse 4. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews, others with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them. This is going to be a common thread in Acts 14. They found out about it and fled to the Lyconian towns of Lystra and Derbe. That's what we're going to read next, into the surrounding countryside. And there, guess what they did? They continued preaching the gospel. Very common pattern to the New Testament church. They preach. Some believe. Their lives get threatened. And so they either continue on or they're killed. They either continue on to the next town or they're killed right there. Sometimes they get slowed down, but they are never, listen to me, they're never silenced. And the more you try and silence the early church, what we're going to see is the more the gospel spreads through them. That's what happens when you attempt to smash God's church. It shatters into more pieces and spreads all the further to areas where they go and then share the good news there is where, wherever they go. I'll never forget being told about the story of the... Um, in the latter half of the 20th century, how the gospel advanced through Cuba, as we have gotten to know uh, some churches there. It's the most remarkable thing to me. They said um, when the communist regime came, what they did is they rounded up the 20 pastors of the kind of 20 largest churches in the country, on the island, and they put them all in the same prison because they thought that'll stop it. So they get them all in the same prison. You put 20 preachers in the same prison. <laughs> That's like, it, what happened? All these prisoners start coming to faith, and there's a revival breaks out in the prison. So here's what they think. I'm telling you, this is documented and everything. Here's what they think. Okay, let's instead send each pastor to a different prison across the island. <laughs> well, yeah, you're chuckling because you know what happened. That's right. Starting revivals break out in prisons all across the island. What's happening? What's happening? Y'all, you try to smash God's church, it will scatter and multiply. He is with his church. He is with his church. And so he is with his church, 
and he has given this church his redeeming love, and then in his kindness has invited us to be a part of sharing that redeeming love with others. And he is in that. He is in it. Look, here's the first characteristic of a planning to go church. is We share the gospel expectantly. We share the gospel expectantly. Wherever these two guys went, they preached the gospel. That's the one thing that is in common everywhere they go. They planned to preach. They found people of peace. They found spiritual and cultural centers of thought. They contextualized the gospel thoughtfully to where they were. But at the end of the day, they did all this because they were expecting God to show up and change lives when they preached. The gospel is the announcement of God's redeeming love for you. That though you're a sinner, God still loves you and he offers you forgiveness from your sin. Christ died to pay for your sins and in Christ you're free. You're not your past sins. In Christ, listen to me, you are not your sins. You are a child of God in Christ. In Christ you have the promise of eternity secured with God in heaven. This is good news. And these guys were set apart, honored to be able to go to this people that had never heard it and share it. And God has called every single one of his disciples to this honor. That's Matthew 28. Go make disciples. Who make disciples? Of all nations. Now, I know we're not all gifted the same. This isn't a conversation about everybody going and preaching sermons. Like, I feel like the Lord has gifted me to preach, teach, And to lead, that is my gifting. That doesn't make me the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. I'm one of the body parts. Just like you and the Lord has gifted you a certain way. Some preach and teach and others in other ways. And we are all called, though. We all are called into. And I want to even change that word to invited into a purpose greater than ourselves. And that's to be God's agent of reconciliation in the world so that others might come and experience his redeeming love. It's amazing to me. Maybe you've been waiting or wondering if God's ever going to call you, if he has a purpose for you. And today I want to get that question answered loud and clear. He's called you. It's not if God has called you, but where he's calling you. And let's expect God to change a life when we go. When they shared, people believed in great number. The more they shared, the more believed. And sometimes I think we we don't think God can use us. Because we're not eloquent or because we got a checkered past or whatever else. And I'm like, yo, God saved you, didn't he? If you're a Christian, God saved you. If he can do that with you and all your baggage, certainly he can then turn around and use you to be an agent of sharing his redeeming love with somebody else. Let's put that to the test and see what happens. And listen, again, you can't do it on your own. If you're like, yeah, I'm too messed up, yes. Let me be as your pastor. You are messed up. You got problems, okay? It is not us training you to to better your abilities, all right? We're not doing it. No, no, no. It's God in you that's going to change someone's life. It's not you. So allow the Lord to work through you. See what he does. Verse 8. Let's keep going. And Lystra, a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet, had never walked, and had been lame from birth. He listened as Paul spoke. Man, I wanted to be here for this. We get the word, which is really great. We get to still get it. After looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. He jumped up. I love that. Didn't just stand up. Jumped up and began to walk around. 
The man had faith to be healed. Didn't necessarily, it doesn't say anything like he desired salvation from his sins yet. It's usually what happens. I think of the lame man in Luke 5, the lame man in Acts 3. They wanted physical healing. This is what people want, right? How can Jesus help me with the real problems in my life? And the power to heal gives evidence to the greater power. Signs and wonders for a purpose. The signs of healing gives greater, gives evidence to a greater power, and that's the power to save. That's what Jesus gets at in Luke 5 when he heals the paralyzed man. This guy's laying on a mat. His buddies tear open the roof, right? Lower him down in there just to get him to be healed. Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders in the room are offended. He's like, you can't forgive sins. Only God can do that. So he says, which is easier? to forgive sins or heal the sick, but so that you might know that I have the power to forgive, I'm going to heal him. And now what's happening here in this moment in Lystra is we're seeing that that power has not gone away. When Jesus resurrected, that power he left with his church. Now the church has the same power. Paul sees this man as faith. The Lord grants Paul that sight, and Paul says, get up. The purpose in both is that physical healing is a demonstration of God's power to perform spiritual, eternal healing, to heal you from your sin, to forgive you of your sin and reconcile you to God. Verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the Iconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, because he's a little more cut, and Paul, Hermes, no, I'm just playing, that's not, um, Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, um, they brought bulls and reeds to the gates because he intended with the crowds to offer a sacrifice. See what's happening here? And before you think, oh, my goodness, those, those people are crazy, check yourself a little bit. They're responding the only way they know how. They see power, and they think the gods we know of that we have worshipped in our tradition for so long have come down in human form even Zeus, the chief god, is here. There's always a tendency to confuse the power that heals with the healer himself. And the healer here <laughs> is made visible very quickly by these two, all right? They set the record straight. Verse 14, the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, tore their robes when they heard this. They rushed into the crowd shouting, people, why are you doing these things? We are people just like you. And we're proclaiming good news to you that you turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to go their own way. Although, oh, I love, this is such a good missionary text. Although he did not leave himself without a witness, since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven. Who's being given credit for the rain? That's God, right? And fruitful seasons and filling you with food and, then, and filling your hearts with joy. Even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. Paul and Barnabas make sure real fast to divert praise away from themselves. Don't praise us and then miss God. They want these people to praise, but they want them to praise God. And they immediately go into showing how God has been pursuing them all along. It's always been God. God is the one who gave you the rain. Not the one that you worshipped about that. It was the one true living God. 
God is the one who gave you the harvest. God gave you joy every time you had a big meal and leaned back at the table around your family and thought, wow, this is great. This is the life. That moment right there where your heart feels full, that is not your doing. You didn't create that. Zeus didn't create that. The universe didn't create that. The living God gave you that moment. And Paul says, let's make sure you understand it wasn't me. I get zero credit for all of that and zero credit for what I'm announcing to you now. Listen, a planning to go church is constantly decreasing so that he increases. Constantly decreasing. Making little of themselves in order to make sure they make much of Jesus. God does not share his glory. That's why these guys are so quick to divert attention. Like they run into the crowd. It's dangerous for them to receive glory that belongs to God. And it would be so easy to do so, though. But they refuse because they know God is about God's glory. And if they make this ministry about themselves, they're in trouble. God's not going to be in that. And that's going to take them down a bad direction. You know, John the Baptist said the same thing when he was preaching right before, uh, actually when Jesus comes onto the scene. This is over in, um, over in John 3. He says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just the one that's been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. All right, that's, that's John saying that Jesus is the groom because he has the bride, which is the church. That's a beautiful metaphorical picture there. But the groom's friend, let's call him the best man, okay, who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete as the best man over here. He must increase, but I must decrease. What John is saying is how ridiculous would it be, he's painting this picture, that the bride is walking down the aisle to her groom, and the best man is over here going, what's up, girl? Like leaning in and trying to get her, like flirting with the bride? Trying to divert her attention off of the groom and onto himself? That would be not only absurd, it would be offensive to the groom. The best man's job is one thing, just kind of dust his shoulders off, like make him look good and otherwise not be noticed, right? That's his job, and that's the job of the church. It's the job of every single one of us is to present the groom. Listen to me, there should be no such thing as Christian fame. We're so prone to worship something, though, that even we Christians create paths to Christian fame. I think it's good. Let me make sure I say this. I think it's good to have heroes in the faith. A hero in the faith is something different, though, than just fame. But I see too many who have sought the limelight for themselves and used God as a means to get it, trying to author their own story and make God one of their endorsements. Please, I'm warning you, do not use God for your own glory. It's not what he's sending you for. He's sending you in the words of Nicholas von Zinzendorf, who I know you've read his autobiography and now you're finally getting to hear something from him, right? Nicholas von Zinzendorf, way back in the Reformation, it's on his tombstone. He said, my calling in life was to preach Christ, die and be forgotten. That's our calling. And it may be that your pursuit of your own glory, your own legacy, is the thing that's keeping you from the joy of the sent life. You heard John the Baptist. My joy is complete over here, making much of Jesus. There's a joy that you might 
be missing out on because you're so concerned with your own legacy. Now, what happens next? Pretty similar storyline. Here come those angry, unbelieving Jews that have been trolling Paul all over the Mediterranean. They follow him from Iconium where he just was. That, by the way, they follow him 100 miles. You got to be pretty mad to walk 100 miles to beat a guy up, all right? So verse 19, some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. They went and they won over the crowds. They stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. This time they got to him in Iconium. They tried to stone him, but in Lystra they did. To the point they dragged him out, thought he was dead. I'm going to go ahead and say here's the next thing. I think it's our third thing in a planning to go church. We've got to be expecting to suffer and sacrifice. We should be expecting it. Let me be clear. I do believe God is going to call some of you to take the gospel to a part of the world where Christ is not known. Which means preaching the gospel may bring hostile, physical attack. The church was persecuted more in the 20th century, physically persecuted more in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. When you look at number of attacks against the church. And if the 21st century is any indication, these first 20 years, it'll be even more. You may take the gospel to a hostile place and you may die. The possibility that if over time we remain a planning to go church, that I might get a call that says, you know, I know Darren and Jennifer or Dominic and Nicole have been killed in a place like Somalia. I may get a call that Brandon's in hiding in a bunker in Iran and we don't know if he's going to make it out. I get that the Lord might even use today to create a chain of events to lead me to getting that call. The only thing that keeps my mouth open right now is that the scripture says, how beautiful are those feet? How beautiful are those feet? Cause them honored to be able to suffer like their Messiah and says to live as Christ and to die as gain. And it's only security in Christ, the joy of being a part of his mission, a love for people that reflects Christ's love for them that makes such a life make any sense. Most are going to be called to other locations and many will be called to stay. And you need to be willing to stay here in Charlotte but it'll be in places where you're not hunted for your faith, but you will suffer and sacrifice, and we should plan for it. Expect it. Are you ready for rejection? Are you expecting rejection when you share the gospel? I see it in subtle ways. Families, are you willing to be rejected, kind of sidelined, because you choose church over sports and choose Christ over sports? And you might be the only one that does that on a team or in your school team or Whatever else. What about the employee or employer who's ostracized for practicing a faith or for preaching a gospel that directly contradicts the worldview of the day? You will suffer and you'll sacrifice. Jesus didn't say if they reject you. He said when in Luke 6. Luke 6. Luke, the same author of the book of Acts, Reminds us of Jesus' words, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven. For this is the way of their ancestors, the way they used to treat the prophets. So now let me show you what love looks like in response to that. 
Jesus said just a few verses later in Luke 6 to love's going to look like turning the other cheek. Paul knew that teaching of Jesus because look what Paul did next. After they beat him, stoned him, left him for dead. Verse 20, after the disciples gathered around him, he got up and he went into the town. The one that, the same one, right? It wasn't until the next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. He got back up. In the words of Sean Carter, go on and brush your shoulders off right there, okay? When you get so beat up, they think you are dead. And you get up, you dust off and walk back into that town. That's a huge moment for Paul. He's going to refer to it several other times in his letters. When they stoned him, he loved them enough to go back. What love. Here's the last thing about a planning to go church. It means loving people who don't love Jesus yet. Loving people who don't love Jesus yet. Only one saturated like a full sponge with the love of God is able to get his brains beaten in and then go back. Now, here's the thing. He loved who God loved. And God loves people that don't love him yet. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, this is hard. That's hard. The only way to do that is to remember 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. One thing we Christians tend to forget is that we didn't always know Christ. And that we did nothing to make ourselves worthy of the salvation we received. God in his kindness sent somebody to tell us. And we who didn't love Jesus were loved by Jesus. We were loved by that person who told us about Jesus. Because God is so good like that. He loves the people that reject him. And he keeps sending his people to announce his love. And it may be that you suffer and get rejected by the very people God sends you to. Will you still love them when they reject you? Right there is when you'll be closest to your Savior. God has placed you now among people, right now, among people who need the gospel. But you're only going to go to them with the gospel if you love them like Jesus loves them. If you see their separation from Christ's redeeming love as the greatest need that they have. It's not a question of if God is sending you. He already has. But Christian, you can't share that great hope of the gospel just because it's your duty or out of fear of like being guilty because you're not doing enough or something. That's not how the gospel works. If you feel any bit of that, go back to Jesus. John 15, 9, abide in my love and then you will bear fruit. Everything I just shared about a planning to go life, he did, Jesus did every one of them for you. He was sent from heaven to come to earth for you and I. He came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God to give sight to the blind, set captives free. He planned to decrease so that the Father would increase. He would be exalted, yet he humbled himself to the Father's will. He made his purpose in his life to do the Father's business. He planned to suffer and die so that we could live. He planned to hang on the cross. And even as he hung on the cross, Put there by the people who rejected him. What did he say over them? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Love. He still loved them. The only way a church turns into a movement for the gospel is when our hearts are so filled with God's love for us, we can't bear the thought of others missing it. That's God's heart for our neighbors and for the nations. You only exhibit that kind of self-sacrificing love when you make your home and his love for you. What I'm saying is that we won't make plans to go anywhere until Jesus becomes more worthy to us than he ever has been before. But once we see him as worthy, we'll no longer wonder, 
Oh man, have I been called? No, well, ask him. Here I am, send me. I gotta tell some others about this. And we'll just start looking for where. When I was in college, finishing college, I had been overseas to East Asia for, um, for a summer. I've told some of y'all the story, and it became very clear. I felt like the Lord was, uh, had identified. I put my yes on the table. God had put it on a map right there. I talked with the woman that I would be marrying, Courtney, who's my wife now. I was like, she's always been my wife. I was with my wife. She's my wife now. Um, but you know what I'm saying? I want to make sure I'm clear there. But we're talking around this conversation. We're like, look, this is where we're going because God has called everybody where is our spot on the map? It's right over there in East Asia. But of course, we're willing to hold things open before the Lord. And a couple of times, the plans got delayed for a bunch of reasons. We were later kind of start to understand it. And a guy came and sat down with me. I was interning at a church. He said, Spence, I know you're planning to go. I want to ask you if you'd be willing to stay and train up. You're clearly gifted as a teacher. What if you'd be willing to train up 100 people to go in your place? And that was a, that was a moment for me. It happened in a Quiznos. The only way that you remember that is if it's a God moment, okay? Otherwise, you forget your Quiznos experience, all right? But I'll never forget it because God was like, you got to stay open-handed. And I was willing to stay because I was a, a calling. I was going right there. And by God's grace, before we came here to Mercy, we sent 248 people to go live overseas with the gospel, right? That was like a thank you, God, for letting me just be a part of that story. About five years after that, Still keeping my yes on the table because I had to do it with every single person. I'm training and saying, hey, where is God calling you to go? i got to be still keeping my yes on the table. And it seemed like God might have been calling us uh, to a spot down um, in Florida, in a spot in Florida that needed the gospel. And it was this big, huge job. I'm like, all right, God, you know my yes is on the table? And he's like, no, no, no. have more work for you here. There's more that still need to go. And we stayed. And then in 2014, we start praying, um, God, it feels like you're calling us to go out now. We feel a little bit of release, and we're always planning to go. My yes is on the table. And God said, yep, this time it's time to go. And we planted Mercy Church. And that meant leaving a whole lot of friends. And it was, it was hard and everything else. But it was because there's a whole lot of people that need to be trained up to be sent out in the Charlotte area. And I want to make it a sending hub. And that's like God's calling on my life. And that's where we are here, still keeping our yes on the table before the Lord. And inviting, I want to invite you to the same thing. Put your yes on the table. Watch where he puts it on the map. He has already called you. Let's be a church planning to go from right here today with the great hope of the gospel. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your grace on us. That in your kindness, you invite us. You invite us to join your work. We praise you, praise you for the gift of salvation. We don't take that for granted. Forgive us, Father, where that has just been assumed in our prayers, assumed in our daily lives. God, I pray for fresh, renewed joy in the gospel for my brothers and sisters in here. Give us joy in Christ. God, I pray for your heart for people that don't love you yet. God, I pray that you would, you would give us your eyes to see the people around us, neighbors, classmates, coworkers, people we just encounter in a quick retail interaction, anything else. God, give us your eyes, your heart. You are sending us today with the greatest news the world has ever heard. 
And you're sending us with your very presence. Oh, Father, give us joy as we make much of Jesus together. Thank you, God, that you are sending us. Thank you that you go with us. We worship you in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. You stand as we celebrate salvation of our God.